Welcome to Digital Health Unfiltered. I'm Sudipto Srivastava. And I am Nick Jeans. In this podcast, we share our insights from the cutting edge of health IT. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Digital Health Unfiltered. I am Sudipto Srivastava, and I'm joined by my co-host, Nick Jeans. Hello, this is Nick Jeans. I am an emergency physician and clinical informaticist. We are both digital health enthusiasts working in large healthcare organizations. Well, today's topic is on remote patient monitoring, which is essentially, as it says, monitoring a patient remotely. Nick, um, what would be a simplistic definition of RPM? Yes, well, think of me when you think of simplistic definitions. But uh, <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll say first, um, you know, is it remote patient monitoring or is it remote physiologic monitoring? Because I, I hear both, and sometimes uh, that, that trivia, you, you can count on me to bring up that kind of stuff. But um, RPM, I, I feel, is going to be huge and important in the future uh, for managing chronic disease, preventing exacerbations of chronic illness, even managing acute illness, uh, you know, getting patients out of the hospital faster. Um, there are certainly cases where it seems effective and safe probably most studied for diabetes and hypertension, for getting devices into the hands of patients so that they are transmitting their data to a care team who is monitoring them, making sure their disease doesn't progress. Also, examples of uh, RPM include CHF and COPD. Uh, lots more out there. It's really, uh, even you can track medication adherence for, for all kinds of uh, chronic illness. Uh, I think we have a vision of what RPM will look like in some idealized future state. We're just not there yet. In fact, we're, we're just getting started. Thank you, Nick. You know, and now as the audience can imagine, you know, we can have 87 podcasts just dedicated to RPM. And, you know, just FYI, we're calling remote patient monitoring for RPM for ease of use. But today we will drill down into a specific topic of who should pay for RPM. There are clearly a plethora of costs related to it. You know, there's the devices themselves, the infrastructure to build, the medical team that monitors this all, et cetera. So, Nick, maybe we start with a quick question of who is currently paying for RPM? Well, um, CMS is, uh, the Medicare and Medicaid, the, the federal government, at least uh, there are some fee-for-service codes that work. And there are some new ones that were just introduced last year. It's kind of a third generation of codes because the last time CMS really focused on this in 2015, it's remote patient monitoring didn't really take off to the extent that uh, that I think they had hoped it would. So they released some new codes last year. And it really covers, if you're a, a clinician and you want to uh, get reimbursed for monitoring your patient, you can actually make uh, 50 or 60 bucks uh, for 20 minutes of monitoring each month. And that is, uh, you know, a very glib description of a, a very complicated technical standard. But if you want to submit a claim, you can do that. You can get reimbursed. And that's code 99457 for our uh, uh, people that are following along at home. And there's also codes for onboarding and educating patients. There's codes for supplying the device and uh, you know maintaining the device, et cetera. So CMS has kind of thought about it. At the population level, though, it gets trickier to measure. There's uh, accountable care organizations and benchmarks that uh, hospital systems want to maintain, but they would lead. They would need a lot of patients to move the needle, uh, or a lot of patients that were having a hard time monitoring their, and, and achieving their benchmarks to be able to uh, qualify for those reimbursements. 
Super. So now let's dive in. You know, in the complex of cycle of healthcare, maybe we should start by thinking about who benefits the most from RPM. And in my mind, you know, I have like these three categories. You know, first, of course, are the patients, uh, because hypothetically, they're getting more digital touch points with their doctors. You know, we saw a prime example during COVID when patients were sent home and told to monitor their oxygen saturation levels using like a $15 to $20 SpO2 monitor, you know, or the ones that hospital gave them. So, so there's clearly a benefit for the patients. Payers slash insurance companies, definitely, you know, they, they can get long-term savings. You know, once they have balanced out the upfront investment into RPM, the setting up the infrastructure, the people, the monitoring, and so on, then I think they get to squeeze out the larger hospitals by saying that, you know, monitoring patients at home is undoubtedly cheaper than being in the hospital. And then there's the, the hospitals themselves. You know, in my view, I think they benefit the least unless you think about a, an ACO kind of a model, which are more similar to like a payer model, because unless these hospitals move to a value-based structure, you know, RPM tools just become, you know, an added cost, more work, more alerts, and everything else on staff. Yeah, I want to agree with all of that, but I have counter arguments for all of that too. It's um, let's start with the hospital one first, because I think they could actually gain a fair amount just from RPM, even in the short term, even without a value based structure, because RPM could allow for faster turnover. Um, if you can take a four-day hospitalization and make it a three-day stay by discharging the patient with a device, that frees up a new bed faster for the hospital. That's kind of like uh, they, they get paid by the hospitalization, not by the day. So um, this kind of increased turnover is actually maybe attractive to them, at least in some situations. For the patient perspective, I, I kind of, yeah, they, they stand to gain a lot potentially, but I also think about it in terms of just a, not an electronic device that's transmitting data, but think about it in terms of like a medication that is really complicated to take and maybe it involves injections or a weird schedule or getting up in the middle of the night or something. It's some hassle, some frustrating. If the medication is actually not doing anything, then you're, you're forcing the patient to jump through a lot of hoops for no good reason. And, and there might even be side effects. So think about the devices in that perspective, and you might see that uh, you know this is uh, not necessarily a, a benefit to patients. If it turns out the data just isn't there, the evidence just isn't there that, uh, that this prolongs life or improves quality of life. And then uh, finally, the payers, you know, one day or one week of bad data can undo years of cost savings. Uh, and I see this in the emergency department, even with non-digital stuff like blood pressure cuffs, the, the old-fashioned blood pressure cuffs. Yes, it's good to monitor your blood pressure and report those numbers back to your primary care doctor to adjust your medications. But if you take your blood pressure and you see a number you don't like, and then you decide to double up on your meds uh, and you have a medical misadventure, or you just rush to the ER in the middle of the night for a second opinion, then that blood pressure cuff is no longer cutting costs, it's, it's generating costs. So the payers might have a good reason to be skeptical. Interesting, interesting. You know that that certainly is a a, a, a very sort of take on who benefits, um, and hopefully it helps our listeners think through how complicated just tabulating these benefits are. So now let's also talk about the, the different cohorts that we mentioned above, and and think about how they're they're looking at it. You know, 
as I said earlier, hospitals, you know, I think they're, they're, they're looking to increase revenue. And as Nick, you know, you're saying, maybe they're looking to sort of save costs in certain areas. Um, you know, payers are certainly looking to reduce costs so that they can, you know, pocket some of the, the margins. I think patients, um, you know, they might just be oblivious to what healthcare is doing or trying to doing. And maybe they, they go the consumer-based RPM route with like activity monitors, blood pressure cuffs, things that they are, that are being pushed at them, say at CVSs or their, you know, friends uh, talking about it and, and whatnot. And I think there's a fourth bucket of new entrants, uh, you know, the, the industry like Amazon and, and others. I'm getting ads already on my Facebook feed about Amazon Halo and their recent sort of, you know, uh, procurement of them. Mm. Yeah, I guess. And you could say these consumer devices are a form of remote patient monitoring. That that data is generated and it's really just for the consumer to review and, and maybe get inspired to, to track and, and improve their fitness or their meals or their medication adherence or, or something, or their heart rate, I guess, uh, is, is some of the consumer devices can do that. But th the truth is, though, that like without the care team associated with it, it's it's really not remote patient monitoring. It's more like a, uh, just a patient uh, quantified self kind of stuff. But it could be priming them for a future when they have chronic disease and they really do need true remote patient monitoring. Fair point. You know, and, and now that we're sort of peeling the onion on the uh, the, the industry, and we talked about Amazon, there are other players. You know, the one that comes to mind, of course, is Best Buy. Yep, you heard it, Best Buy. And Nick, you may rem remember our prediction from almost a year ago when we thought that Best Buy and GeekSquad could be a great, uh, uh, you know, way for getting them into this sort of arena. Um, and there's a ton of uh, new entrants coming in. So, look, um, Last year, telehealth took off massively uh, in 2020 because of the, the COVID crisis. And, um, and it created a very noisy place for, for, for telehealth. And, you know, we saw companies having great valuations, you know, Teladoc and others. You know, I mean, it, it should be noted that recently Teladoc's stock, if you, know, if you track that, has gone from a very high of 292 to, I think it's trading at like 170, 75 uh, sort of today. So, you know, they, they're probably getting nervous as well because it's getting very crowded. Uh, of course, Teladoc made the, the big purchase of uh, Libongo, which is kind of like exactly the space of RPM and sort of expanding their service offerings. And maybe there are other entrants that try to differentiate themselves by adding uh, remote patient monitoring devices to their existing telehealth structure, like mental health monitoring or blood sugar monitoring and so on. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, good points. Um, and and you're right. I think uh, Teladoc is a, a great company to watch because they are, I think they had done very well in the last decade uh, with virtual urgent care, just, you know, doctors on demand when you need them, when you're feeling sick or something like that. But they are, they've introduced a, a primary care kind of model that's still virtual. And the only way that's really going to work is with uh, remote patient monitoring and, and lots of uh, devices feeding the doctor's uh, information. So good example. Uh, and this is going to sound uh, a little uh, strange, but I, I like how you brought up Best Buy. And when I think about Best Buy versus Amazon in the, in the remote patient monitoring field, I think in the short run, uh, I think Best Buy is a better bet over Amazon. <laughs> uh, my financial advisor is probably having a heart attack, but like I, I'm just talking about when it comes to RPM. 
I, th- I do think Amazon is is trying to solve a huge problem with Halo, and I think that I, I, you know I'm not even convinced they're actually trying to solve that problem. They may be trying to, but it's it's a little bit like self driving cars and AR goggles and stuff. We've seen some progress, but it's going to take years before we have like a universal kind of wearable that is frictionless and easy to use and fun and easy. And uh, in the meantime, Best Buy will thrive because their geek squad can fix all the shortcomings of the current technology, the the Bluetooth connectivity, the fiddling with the router to be able to send signals to your hub, to your care team, or even just replacing the device after you drop it in the toilet or something. So it's, uh, I think in the short term, at least Best Buy is going to, is going to thrive. And maybe in the long term, Amazon with deep pockets is going to succeed. Wow. Well, we'll definitely come back and revisit it. And, uh, and we will have plenty of reasons to come back and talk about this topic again, because you know, a recent Forbes article mentions that, quote unquote, uh, or quote, the, the global RPM market is on pace to reach 117.1 billion by 2025, compared to just about 23.2 billion in 2020. So, and that's like a five-fold increase in five years. So a lot of that, they, the predictions are in the cardiovascular monitoring and diabetes man- management areas. So, so clearly there's something big afoot here. Um, and that kind of brings us, uh, as we get close to the end of this, to prediction time. Nick, uh, I'll let you get the, the the last word on this thing. So I will go out on a limb and make my prediction. Um, I feel that the largest growth of remote patient monitoring RPM will come more from the consumer side of things, you know, where there will be a concierge model of primary care or something that gets set up where the more affluent, affluent patients get to pay the doc out of pocket to keep an eye of things. It could be, you know, Amazon doing a large scale effort with Halo and finding ways to monetize it, or, you know, talking about the concierge setup, you know, the biggest concierge mindset that people have is with Apple as a platform. So Apple could come up with something where they'd use either their watch or some other tool for high net worth clients and to give them the the capability to to monitor themselves because guess what these people want to live forever <laughs> yeah you know and i i do keep hearing about like these non-diabetics who want their own glucometers anyway just to to monitor postprandial blood sugar or something uh, there's a lot of uh you know consumer interest in medical tech but i'll, I'll i like this prediction um i'm going to take the opposite one though so the forbes is saying uh, uh Five-fold increase in the next five years, I do not think it will grow that much. Uh, I do not think the RPM field will be uh, that much bigger unless, you know, there's another kind of black swan event like a pandemic or something, or unless the government steps in and and makes even easier to use codes that cover more conditions, because right now the codes are not not very user-friendly, and I think a lot of docs are still hesitant to, to try it. And, and you need like a, a lot of infrastructure uh, if you're going to kind of launch an RPM program at your clinic or healthcare facility. So I, I would say RPM today is a little bit like pre-pandemic telemedicine, something that, you know, there were experiments in, uh, but never penetrating more than like a few single digit uh, percentage points of the market. But look, telemedicine took off last year because there was a real need that could not be solved by any other way. And... They got really simple guidance from the U.S. government. Zoom is okay. FaceTime's okay. You can even bill for phone calls. Uh, the handbook for setting up and running with telemedicine went from a book to a tip sheet. And, and that 
really facilitated the growth of plus the fear and the the, the need uh, that people didn't want to get exposed to COVID. Uh, but we are really not there yet with remote patient monitoring. The codes are Byzantine, convoluted. And I get it. CMS writes these codes you know, for the ages. They don't want fraud. They don't want errors. Uh, they don't want to have to go back and revise codes. Uh, a lot of their codes have been on the books for, for decades. But still, I think it's just too much friction. So I can't see that uh, RPM is going to really explode. Uh, at least the CMS reimbursement kind of RPM is going to explode in the next few years. That's, that's my prediction. And going back to, if you want to keep hearing me bloviate, let's just be careful about how we implement RPM. We saw the RAND analysis a few years ago for telehealth that it didn't necessarily decrease costs because, yes, each encounter is cheaper, but when you lower the threshold for an encounter, it makes it easier uh, for patients to see a doctor about it, any little thing, so you end up with more encounters. My friend Ari Freeman just published a similar kind of analysis about urgent cares versus the emergency department. Same thing, urgent cares are cheaper, but you end up with more visits, so costs don't necessarily go down. I think if we kind of rush into RPM without a lot of evidence, without a lot of quality uh, papers to guide us, but also quality devices to, to operate and maintain, then uh, we might not see the benefits that we're expecting. That's it for this week. Join us again next time on Digital Health Unfiltered. Please note that the views presented in this podcast are not to be construed as the views of Mount Sinai Health System or the Hospital for Special Surgery or any of its affiliates.